where they're playing some tracks where they're up to 14 minutes, as you described. Some of them are less, but they're still lengthy tracks. Like if they were to be played on radio, they'd have to be trimmed down for the time. Uh, I don't think they really fussed about that kind of stuff. But uh, Eddie, your first introduction to Die Straits, how did that occur? Yeah, I was a little bit later to the party than uh, than Graham. I didn't really get into Dire Straits until the Brothers in Arms album came out. That was everywhere. That was kind of like their most commercial mm-hmm. album of, of all. Um, I remember being at high school at the time and uh, a couple of people there were saying, oh, we're going to go and see Dire Straits. And I'd never been to a concert at all. So it turned out to be the first concert I've ever been to. Uh, entertainment what center. What a benchmark that is. Yeah, yeah, back in 87 or 88, somewhere Six. around there. 86, maybe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I was in year 10, year 11 or something. So, yeah. Um, we all went off to the Entertainment Center and um, saw Dire Straits. But in, in the lead up, uh, I kind of got into their stuff a bit more. I sort of researched a few of the earlier albums, um, Love Over Gold, particularly. Um, yeah, really really amazing album uh but the the brothers in arms album has always sort of held a, a very special place because it's um it was really the first the first thing i'd really listened to in depth and 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 actually saw the band live um quite a quite an interesting concert too it was the one that they televised here we were in the audience for that night and during the ad breaks they were they were doing all this um all this other stuff they were playing like covers of of other bands during the ad breaks and then they'd stop and they'd say, yep, we're back to air again. So yeah, it was literally live, live on telly. Was it that kind of deliberate when they suddenly realised they were about to go back on air after the ad break? They said, right, stop the song, bang, back to the concert. Yeah, they'd say, yep, 30 seconds, you could hear it coming over the PA. You'd hear the announcement saying, yep, 30 seconds and then they'd just stop and they'd prepare themselves and then they'd come back on stage and yeah, away they go again. So yeah. Pretty, I thought that would have been amazing. super unusual for the band itself. Mm. You know, to stop for live ad breaks. They did a heap of stuff uh, in the ad breaks. I, I wish they had recorded that bit because it was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. They did um, Cure songs. They did um, uh, ACDC. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. did like Highway to Hell. Oh, Eddie, oh. you didn't you didn't have your iPhone there? No, no, I didn't back then. Um, yeah, I think it was in for repair. What what Apple recording devices did you bring? Oh, I think it was a reel to reel tape recorder, but it was confiscated at the at the gate, so I couldn't couldn't take it in. But yeah, first concert yeah. ever. So that's that's where I sit with Dire Straits, um, and and the, the Brothers in Arms album. It was a very commercial album. Um, that song "Money for Nothing" is, I, I think, one of their worst. It was so, yeah. When you were looking back at some of the other stuff they did and comparing it, um, I think it was just a a cash grab, that song. I think it's one of their more misunderstood songs because it is a bit of a piss take, that song. When you hear some of the lines in it, uh, I've seen an interview with Mark Knopfler where he was actually in a white goods shop he was overhearing one mm. of the guys in the shops talking about MTV, which was really big at the time. You've got to remember the era. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you hear the lines in it where it's like, um, you know, see that little faggot with the earring and the makeup, yeah, buddy, that's his own head kind of thing. 
he's literally quoting the bloke who works in the shop, you know, commenting to somebody else and doing all this kind of macho bravado type stuff. And Knopfler found it so fascinating. He said, I've got to write this down. So when you do like money for nothing, and that's another one of his quotes, like you do this, you get your money for nothing and your chicks for free. Some people who didn't look into the song, they actually thought this is something that uh, Dire Straits or Mark Knopfler is espousing. I said, no, it's a peace take on the bloke working in that shop. He's virtually quoted in verbatim in a lot of the song. He couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I think and, with, uh, um, in hindsight, though, I don't think you'd get away with that these days. Yeah, I don't think we lose the sophistication and knowing when he's using that line that I quoted from before, it doesn't mean that he's endorsing it. He's poking fun at the type of person who could speak like that. Yeah, I think without a little bit solemn disclaimer, I think you'd have to explain it like you were talking to a two-year-old to to get away with it. So just to add a little bit to that, um, I think Knopfler in a lot of his songwriting, he tends to um, tell stories about himself, but he replaces the names. So, Mm. for, for instance, Romeo and Juliet was actually a song about a love affair he had with someone. Um but obviously he changed it to Romeo and Juliet. It's actually a story about himself or something he lived through, and he does that in a lot of his songs. Um, so, again, as you said, Sid, um, in that Brothers in Arms song, um, yeah, it was a real-life experience where he's just changed things around. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but getting back to Eddie's point, uh, I think that's a little bit of what John Cleese once commented on when one of the Faulty Towers episodes got into trouble. Um, if you remember the Major's character? Oh, yeah. Where I think he, re- he referred to the West Indians as uh, uh, niggers, pardon me if I've got that quote wrong. And the line in itself in isolation is probably not a good thing to say, but what he was doing was poking fun at the attitude yeah. And that's how that's how you deal with those kind of like stereotypes of crappy attitude is to present it and poke fun at it. And I think that's the same tradition that Mark Knopfler was using for money for nothing. We got we got an email from South America. I can remember that. And didn't we get something like from Botswana? Yeah. And you know, to our Botswana and uh, listener, thank you very much. Yeah. Hopefully, you can pick up the Australian accent very well. If there's anyone else from Botswana, um, where would they send those emails, Sid? Uh, they would go to podnoname at gmail.com. I must make a note and of they that. They can address it to you. They can address it to me. We should have a bonus prize if they're able to identify what's the capital city of Botswana. And You, uh, you didn't just tell him it's south of Europe. It is south of Europe. But I think for the first person not from Botswana who gets the answer right... Um, gets a, um, a dinner and a massage from Eddie. And that's first prize. What do you think? Oh, I'm happy to do that, yeah. And second prize was a night out with Sid, wasn't it? That's right, but uh, the massage is not part of the package deal. Oh. That's mm-hmm. third prize. You get the massage included with Sid. Well, we've got to think about Graham's role in this one. I was thinking of going back to. Um, I always thought Mark Knopfler was a, a music, uh, sorry, an English teacher before, <laughs> before he learned about Botswana. I had um, heard that. I had heard that he was a teacher. Yeah. I his heard brother, that he was a, his brother was a social worker. 
Mm-hmm. And I know Pick Withers, um, he he was like a 10-year veteran already. He, he'd worked with people like Jerry Rafferty um, before mm-hmm. they even got together. But he'd also worked with Mark in the Brewers Droop, a band around 73, 74. Mm-hmm. And I think the He's other in a guy... a band called Brewers Droop? Brewers yeah, Droop, I've heard that yeah. too. Yeah, and, um, that too. Ironically, John that's Hill. a lyric in industrial disease. Yeah. And John Ilsley was... Um, pretty sure he was just studying or something when they all got together. So I'm not sure what he was doing. He was always the super duper calm one in the band. Though. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just a presence on stage, just did his job. Funny moves, but um, yeah. Tall, you're, watching, you're, you're watching from film clips and live videos from 77, 78. Fast forward to 86 and his moves hadn't changed. Yeah. And he's got to be thinking. exactly the same. Yeah, he's got to be thinking through the whole dice tracing. How good is this? Oh, it, oh yeah. It was the bass player, wasn't he, Hillsley? There was the yeah. early hair. Yeah, and he was also the, apart from obviously Mark Knopfler, the only band member who was there from Go to Woe because mm. they did have some lineup changes. So they actually had changes in drummer. So Pick Withers, you mentioned there at the start. Uh, was replaced by a Welsh bloke, Terry Williams. Williams. Just Terry, Terry after, Williams. After the, um, yeah, he replaced him after um, making movies. And Pick with his uh, last album was making movies, which was their fourth studio album. Yeah, and Terry Williams just walked in there and got a bigger drum kit, and he was great on stage. It's very interesting to know that uh, oh, we're talking about Brothers in Arms that there is very little drumming that he actually does in Brothers and Arms because Knopfler wanted a more subtler kind of jazz feel on so many tracks. And that's where they got Omar Hakim playing. And something is about on 80% of the songs on there. Uh, one clear difference is uh, we were just talking about the track before Money for Nothing. That is certainly, um, you know, Steve actually doing the drums there from what I've read. They've had changes in guitarists as well. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. When I'm talking about rhythm, so we obviously had Mark Knopfler's uh, brother David to begin with. Yeah, who, I think, I think David, not... yeah, sorry, David left the band due to differences with his brother. Um, and it was during, I think it was, yeah, during making movies. I might be wrong. And I've read the same thing where he's contributed to the album but was never credited on it. Correct. He wasn't credited. And if you look at the inside sleeve of the album, there's three of them there, but um, Dave is not there. Um, pictured. There's Mark, John, and Pick, which mm. is pretty, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but create unfair, the differences and then as brothers, you just wonder what really went down because they're just almost like erased him from history on that band. But everything you read says he's contributed. What to what degree? I don't know. Yeah, he was he was in the um the recording sessions and yeah. um they didn't bring the new guy Hal Lins in actually for the recording they brought him in for the tour of um that that happened afterwards so they got another guy in and his name escapes me at the moment it'll come to me um to finish the recording sessions but there must have been a big blow up and then their main guitarist if I pronounce it, Hal Lines uh, an American. It was there Our for limbs. Love Over Gold. Yeah. And the Alchemy Live album, which I'll come back to a little bit later on, he was certainly very prominent in that. 
And then we went to Brothers in Arms, which was Jack Sonny, uh, another American. So, uh, and also I should point out, keyboardist and pianist who came along during the band as well. So, the guy's name that came in on rhythm guitar after David and Mark had their problem, um, his name was Sid McGuinness. And I think he finished the recording of the album on rhythm guitar um, for making movies. And then they brought in Hal Lins after that to do the tour of, um, I think it was North America, Europe, mm. and Australasia. I wanted to pause and uh, talk about the album Alchemy because I asked both of you, when was your first real introduction to Die Straits? And for me, it was staying at home one night. It was a Saturday night. I remember it being summertime. And something like 10 o'clock at night, they started to do this thing where they'll be showing like live or recorded live concerts of various shows. And at that stage, I've heard of Die Straits without knowing too much about them. And it was the Die Straits Alchemy show. And I could not keep my eyes and ears off what I was watching. I thought, this is just at another level. And I thought, this is just absolutely brilliant. Um, I remember watching at the time when I first started, nobody was home. But then the people started coming home at the time. And I was like, hey, come watch this, mum. I remember mum came home. I was like, Don't, come watch this. You'd be really into this as well kind of thing. Uh, my mother remained like a Die Straits fan right up to her death, and uh, there was even something that we played at a funeral that was Die Straits related to give you a bit of an idea. But uh, I don't think my brothers were as much into them as what I became. But that your, your brothers in arms? Uh, my, not my brothers in arms. That's a different uh, point. But I can still remember the next day going to the record shop, which even dates it as well, just saying... I saw this concert. I think it was called Alchemy, Dyer's Trace. Does that make any sense to you? Can I buy it? You know, and they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I said, you're lucky. And I said, why am I lucky? Apparently, um, I arrived like half an hour after the place arrived. They had 10 copies, and I was just buying number 10. So there were so many other people in the area who saw it and said, right, I want to snap this up straight away. This is incredible stuff. I like and how you say, became... um, I went to a record store and that really dates it. I mean, who remembers record stores? They used to be the, the place to be in, in Nara. Oh. And just to shuffle through um, what even, like, the records look like, you know, and the, the various sleeves, and some of them be very interesting. And uh, I like the idea of where you could actually, one or two that I used to go to, used to go to a listening area where you'd be able to listen to a couple of tracks as well. But I was already convinced I wanted that album. After listening to that, I can remember, you know, asking myself, well, what about some of their other stuff? This is their live material. And uh, I think after that, uh, the timing of that one, uh, Brothers in Arms had not come out yet. Um, but I, I think I picked up their first and second album straight, you know, fairly soon afterwards and gave that a really good listen to. And I like the groove. I like the fact is that you sometimes had to pinch yourself. Like at times they sound rather American, even though they were a British band. Uh, they certainly had that groove about them. There was a sophistication and a fun about it that I really love. And I just thought like, wow, where are these guys been hiding? They're just that good. Uh, then you move it forward a few years and Brothers and Arms became unique. I actually bought that one in vinyl, 
but it became the first album, so to speak, sold on CD to sell more than a million copies, just to give you an idea of that album's popularity. And CD was a relatively new thing, but that was the first one to sell, sell like a million. I forgot the exact figures, but it sold like a hell of a lot. I cannot remember the reason why I could not go to that concert uh, that you referred to, Eddie, like the one in Sydney. I ended up watching it on the telly instead. I can't remember what happened. I kicked myself for not going. I think that was them at, like, the zenith of their career where I think everything just aligned. I think musically they were great. They were on top of the world. Even when you describe how they're having a bit of fun during the ad breaks and stuff I think like it was that. your um, confinement bracelet that prevented you from going yeah, very, to the concert. Um, very possible. Concert. What happened to that? Uh, it's still in Botswana. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Is it beeping? Got... <laughs> it, it's possibly. It's, it's one country that uh, I, I think still has an extradition treaty with Australia, so I've got to be careful about what I say right now. How far away from school entrances do you have to stay these days? You can't answer it. Oh, dear. Oh, if you can't say anything for legal reasons, and just, just oh. move on to the next question. There's a lot of government changes recently, so he's not quite sure of legislation. Okay. Yes, for, for anyone who has no sense of humour, with my job, I do have to pass a regular working with children check, which I do do with flying colours every single time. As do I. Anyway, I just thought I might add that one in. Unfortunately, and, I do uh, too. It's just a, it's a thing these days. I think everybody has to pass that test. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm mm. glad there's um, safeguards there because, you know, be, now that you've passed the test, there's no possible way anything could happen. Well, I actually <laughs> have to do a regular 12-month, um, like, uh, criminal check as well. That's part of my job as well. So, anyway, so I point, do too. And- I'm just glad that we're employing much, much more public servants. It's so good for the country. But let's get back to the topic. Soon. What was the topic? Yeah, I remember. Dice rates were initially known as, I think, the cafe races. Oh, um, yeah, I knew that. That's, yeah. that's well documented. Um, they formed in 1977, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, they recorded a five-track demo which had salt and swing down to the waterline and water of love. I know that. I'm not sure the other two songs were. Oh, I love um, that song, Water of Love. Yeah. They, they mm. took the demo to MCA Records and they were knocked back. Um, it feels like a dumb you-know-what right now. I'm sure that's happened in history quite a lot. They then went to a DJ who was working on BBC Radio. He had a, song, he had a, sorry, a, a show called Honky Tonk, which probably wouldn't go that well these days as well. doesn't and mean there are honkies on it. Yeah, I know. They only went there pretty much for advice. They didn't go there trying to get anything. He then played Sultan's Swing on his show, and two months later they had the uh, recording contract with Vertigo Records. Mm. And, again, the rest is history. They were on to a good thing, weren't they? Yeah. And um, I think all the albums I've got of theirs, I just love opening them up, pulling out the vinyl and seeing Vertigo Records. Just yeah. synonymous, synonymous with Dice Straits for me. It's always surprised me there's some labels there who turn down bands who become massive later on. Yeah. And you just wonder what was going through their mindset like. And there's some other labels that says, oh, yeah, I can see the potential there. And then they, you know, they can see the potential is huge. Uh, 
The only thing with Dire Straits is from a worldwide point of view, they were probably a bit of a slow burn. But once the world woke up to them, uh, I think it was a bit like a, uh, you heard one song, we heard one album, and you just wanted to listen to the rest. Like, are there anything as good as the one I'm listening to now? Uh, one of the more interesting things is, this is during that Sydney tour they had in 1986, because Money for Nothing was the album that introduced a lot of people in Australia to them, that was a gateway for people to listen to other albums. So during that tour, they subsequently had, and this is when the top 40 actually meant something, they had Brothers in Arms in the top 40, but they also had all their previous studio releases in the top 40 at the same time, as people yeah. are realising yeah, there's something very good about their back catalogue here. The Brothers in Arms album was was very much a gateway thing for me. It got me into them, and um, because we're going to our first concert, I thought, yeah, I really need to you know, listen to a few of the older songs and see what they're going to play on the night. And um, yeah, went to Alchemy, which is just it's probably my favourite. Uh, the live mm -hmm. Alchemy album. Going to the concerts, uh, just an interesting story is I slept overnight at Roseland Shopping Centre on the top floor car park out the front of the Ticketek office. To get tickets for this concerts in Sydney oh. at the entertainment centre. I thought you were and, going um, to say that you slept there and figured out it was the wrong venue. No, no, um, I got lucky. Wrong but, um, member? I'm just going to say, like one of the greatest things, the people in the in the queue, and there were hundreds. Trust me, they were all awesome people. Mm -hmm. They were just the nicest people I've ever met. We had the best time. The the sleeping overnight, waiting for tickets was as good almost as going to the concert. Just yeah. something I'll never forget. We've all done that. Well, I have. We've lined up overnight for tickets. Um, yeah, you do. You meet some interesting people as overnighters, don't you? Mm. The ones that got there first, you always talk to them. Yeah. And then the ones behind you, you go, huh, we're in front. Sadly, it's something that um, our kids will never experience because it, it just doesn't exist anymore. Everything's all online. They do it true. online. Yeah. And the worst thing is you still end up with shit seats. Yes. We we had absolute think... shit seats for that concert. We were right at the back and about about two rows down from the back, almost dead centre. But did they have the like a big screen? Oh yeah. They had so screens either side and that... um oh, but looking at the looking at Knopfler on stage, he he looked like an ant. We were that far away. Mm-hmm. But um the sound was good and the, the Screens were amazing, and it was just such a spin-out being there, seeing this band that you'd watched on, you know, on MTV and uh, on Rage. Um, yeah, amazing. Actually, I think it was probably Sound Unlimited with Donny Og... Og what's his name? Donny Sutherland at that That's stage. That's it. That's it. Were they a better band live than a studio band? No. Thoughts? Different. Totally different, yeah. Certainly the songs didn't sound as polished live. Mm -hmm. um, but were they better from the yeah, samples of in, the, the two main live albums that they have? In hindsight, and you, um, probably not live. I mean, live production is never going to um, mm -hmm. produce the same as you'll get even with a live recording that's then re-engineered and, and remastered. Look, it, it was the atmosphere... It was, it was sort of being there and, and listening to these songs live that you hear on the radio and on telly. Um, yeah, amazing experience. 
And to see a band like that as your, the actual first concert you've ever been to, it was, um, it was pretty amazing. If you just look at this sample, I've seen them live on German TV and they did a concert there. There's live on the BBC and I, um, I've got a CD of that one. The Sydney concert that we refer to, the Alchemy concert, I know there's a few other examples. And to me, oh, yes, Sid, I before you go on, is... can you just explain yeah? to the younger listeners what a CD is? It does go on too. Yeah, uh, a CD is like a smaller version of a record, so it's about half the size. And that, Actually, you probably have to explain what a record is, is too. Yeah, so record... It... <laughs> Record is uh, like vinyl, so it's approximately about in diameter about 12 inches. If you picture a CD, diameter... You have to explain what an inch is too, Yeah, so it's about 30 centimetres because we are using the, you know, Napoleon metric system here in Australia. But we don't have an American audience to worry about Imperial. So so about 30 centimetres long is a vinyl one where you used to put a needle on it. And the needle used to involve like this little tiny... um, I suppose, a bit of diamond there that would pick up the sound, so you literally have to put it right onto the groove. And when you thought about a a CD, you'd be about a third of that, say about 10 centimetres in diameter, and it'd be more compact, so it would be a lot easier for you to put the actual needle on there and play it. You know, you, you could put it in a lot smaller space, so it was certainly where technology had improved. And probably the big difference is, yes, I'm having a lend of you with part of that explanation is they were the days where you could actually take your CD, play it in the car, where you could not do that with a record. Can I just make sure that we don't ill-inform any of the younger listeners or listener? Um, Let's not call it a needle. We'll call it a stylus, and it's actually attached to a cartridge. Well, I had to simplify it down, you see. You know, I was certainly encouraged to do that by Graham, and it was becoming quite a test there after a while. Oh, quite expensive uh, back so in the day too, those little cartridges, uh, Graham. I remember stopping oh, yeah. one by trying to play um, the Led Zeppelin album backwards, trying to listen to the satanic messages in it and being at, at the end of my father's rage because I'd ruined his stylus. I can imagine. Um, well, I, damn right. I, I, I had to pick up a new stylus for a my old Luxman PD-502, and it was $135. Holy crap. Wow. Wow. The Audio-Technica ones wouldn't fit on it, apparently, this this Luxman, German, yeah, Germans. Um, it needed a specific one, yeah. So, anyway. And, again, that was wrecked by one of my beautiful sons. Mm. Not, not playing anything backwards, but just um, by dragging it across a vinyl LP. Yeah, we'll, we'll be talking more. So in that explanation of what a, an album is and a, a record player and so on, uh, is it safe to say that the vinyl method is a, a more mechanical version compared to the, the CD, which is still mechanical, but um, there, there's no um, no parts that actually come in contact with the, the disc, so there's less chance of, of damaging the disc? Um, well, nothing like physical like we're talking about the stylus and the needle but you do have like i suppose in a sense like it's like a laser or a bit of light there that does actually read what's happening however this is just a personal thing when you play the vinyl you compare it to the cd 
the traditional thing about the vinyl before the music hits, you always get that little bit of crackle. Yeah, the crackle. And yeah. it, it, which was always nice. And then it used to provide a little bit more environment, a little bit more atmosphere, particularly on things that were live. You could pick up those subtleties way better than on a CD. So CD was great. Like you could play it umpteen million times and it wouldn't get scratches on it. Graham's uh, still crackling regularly. Oh, I'm very snap, crackle, and pop even in the afternoon and evening, isn't it? I'm actually crackling right now. You're crackling right now. Mm. I can see why you're sitting down. I could understand that <laughs> very much so. That's the end of part one of our Dire Straits episode. Join us next week for part two. If you'd like to contact any of us, you can drop us an email at podnoname at gmail.com or you can get us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podnoname or at podnoname. If you feel sorry for us and you'd like to donate some money so we can keep doing this podcast, you can get us on our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash podnoname. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Come and join us next week for part two. 